Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you ever see the concrete stairs of every day? The lunatic, the hypocrite are all lost in the fray. Can't see their lives are just like yours. And undertone and undiscovered you're leading to the gift of hope renewed, eternity for you. The masses of humanity have always had to suffer. Hello. Yes, Jay. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. A lot of walking. Good. That's that's keeping me sane. Walking. Yeah, getting out in the nature. And I moved out of the city. I left London t- two months ago now um, because all my work had dried up, basically. I DJ and I tour, and that's how I make the majority right. of my, my money. So right. w- with shows gone, like I thought it's time to leave right. London and get out of the city, and that's what I've done. And Yeah, it's been good. How about you? Are you um, LA-based? Well, south. I'm 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 in Orange County, but yeah, I mean Southern California. I'm, I just I, I came back to the beach. I just moved down to Huntington Beach and said I'm I'm just going to surf all the time because that's what I'd rather do. Well, that's you know, there's worse ways to spend your time, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show, mate. Uh, I've been doing this for almost four years now, and one of the first episodes I did was with Dave Haas, and lovely guy and we we had a very deep profound chat in in the in the episode that we did and he was at the i think the early stages of his sobriety and he he was sort of telling me that you'd been a real a friend and a mentor to him in that regard um and since then i've kind of been following you not to sound weird but i've been following you on instagram and stuff and i just really like the 
I don't know the, the the vibe that you put out into the world and the the honesty with which you approach that subject from time to time on there and yeah man so it's nice to sit down and and talk with you hopefully we will get into some of that perhaps a little further down the line but I don't want to jump straight sure. in with the deep I'm, stuff I'm open to anything <laughs> lovely stuff well that's my dream guest right there Jay um and I also <laughs> I spoke to Joey Cape when you guys were last over in the UK doing the gimme's run and uh, again joey was like he was telling me a lot about the the early la punk scene and some of those shows and bands and he was like oh you've really got to get jay on this show because he just remembers all that stuff way better than me so that's kind of where i'd like to begin if that's cool is um your introduction to punk growing up whether it was a record or a person or a show how did that light bulb get switched on for you um well, I, I had a friend that I went to school with named Matt Olshever, who had an older brother named Robert, uh, who was um, really a music aficionado. I mean, he was, you know, an eighteen an eighteen year old older brother. Oh, that's a reminder that I'm doing an interview. Um, <laughs> he was, you know, he was. Like, I, I guess we. Well, he was probably seventeen or eighteen, and we were maybe thirteen, fourteen. Uh, but. But he had a, just an, an amazing record collection. And so there were things like the Pistols and the MC5 and, and, and Blondie and Devo and just, you know, all the stuff that was coming out that was new and exciting. But, you know, when you were a 13-year-old kid, you were just barely getting out of, uh, you know, whatever your comedy rock show thing was. Um, and so that was the first time I, I'd heard the Pistols was, was at this guy's house. And I didn't think much of it because it just was – it was – brash to me as a kid you're like oh what the hell yeah but i got it um sometime later that year i'm pretty sure it was that same year uh there was a television show um the year in review and uh and it and it and it featured like the last 15 minutes of this television show was dedicated to the sex pistols and like how outrageous they were and, and like look at these people and and this whole punk rock thing. And I, I was 13, 14, and I just was watching this, and I said, that's it, I'm done. This is for me. That, I don't, and it really didn't have anything to do with the music as much as it had to do with just these people were, were just telling the world to fuck off, and I really liked that. <laughs> is that because you were angry and had an, you know, an anti-authoritarian streak about you or was it just that it was exciting because you were young and it was different and it was in your face and you know it was naughty and uh, yeah I, I think there's part of it was uh you know come from a broken home mom and dad divorced my dad moved like we, we i know california is odd to people that don't live here uh but we grew up in the high desert sort of out by magic mountain uh and my dad moved to the beach to Manhattan Beach and so I would spend my weekends at the beach and I would spend my all, almost all my summers at the beach and so I, I I was very aware of this alternative lifestyle that was this surf skate culture um, and so there was that part of it that that sort of made punk rock accessible to me in other words like my sister would get the uh, cream magazine and and you know hot and hit parade and all these you know all the the, the rock magazines and i was getting skateboard magazines and there was guys like Dwayne peters that were sort of like beginning this this lifestyle image 
Uh, and but even the guys like Dogtown with their just fuck this attitude was just that just spoke to me. I don't know why. I think it was part of the skate culture of that was initially sort of frowned upon by everybody because oh you do that. It's like yeah I do that. But um, it, I think that when I was old enough to really understand the lyrics of of the music that was pulling me in. Um, it was it was really the first time I heard Bodies because now I'd heard the Pistols at my friend's house. But there's only one or two songs. When I bought the record and I and I now I've got the album and I'm listening to it. And Bodies comes on and he says "fuck this" and and there's guys saying "fuck" on the record and I'm like, wow, like this is unheard of. This is just I'd heard punk rock, I'd heard fast. Uh, you know, I I got the I got the excitement about it, but now this guy was swearing. And but when you're a kid and someone's swearing on a record with that snarl, you're like, okay, I'm in. And then you you start listening more intently to what they're saying, and that's when you find, for me, you start finding bands like The Jam and The Clash and 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 the lyric and Elvis Costello. And these lyrics are more important than just saying fuck this. And you're like, okay, this this is this is how I feel. I just, I'm too young to be able to say this, but he's putting it into words for me. These, these artists, these lyricists. Bodies is a wild one because it's obviously a song about like being, you know, pro-choice and it's addressing that topic of abortion in such a, a graphic violent way because obviously that subject matter requires that and it's you know I, I, I come from Birmingham as well so I was hearing him say she was a girl from Birmingham I was like wow this right. is my home city directly being talked about and I mean that song for me now still is really affecting and unsettling and it forces you to question life doesn't it which is what all great provocative art I think should do and I think that early scene and those early bands really did do that in a new way didn't they you know from both from both sides of the pond yeah i think so i think that there was there was this irreverence to um whatever the decorum was previously about you know don't rock the boat or you know um I, i try to think of it in terms of of like my dad in the 50s and, and his like rockabilly thing and looking at his dad going, what the hell are you listening to? And, and realizing like how dangerous Elvis Presley was and, and, and Carl Perkins and absolutely. And all, all, all of these things that were happening, you know, that, that just seemed so terrifying to, to quote unquote adults. And that was what punk rock was for me. I, I was probably in the beginning, I was probably really too immature to to really understand the lyrics, to really grasp onto it. I knew there was a, like in the, when you talk about across the pond stuff, one of the things that I always laughed about was, especially in like real hardcore, like deep punk rock bands, they were using British terms that I would never understand. Like never. I didn't know what a nappy was. I didn't know what the dole was. I'm like, I don't understand. A pineapple? <laughs> so, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, it, it's one of those things where you just, because you can't, grasp the concept you just grab the emotion yeah and so i think when i was when i was that age 13 14 that emotion was uh this tasmanian devil of anger and uh anxiety and you know just all the things that you're going through as a young teenager and honestly by the time we started the band 15 16 now I did understand lyrics a lot better, and 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 these are the conversations that we had 
when we only had three or four songs, we were talking about what kind of songs we wanted to write. And so we all had a pretty good, I think we all came from that same era of, I'm caught up by the excitement, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm enamored with the possibilities of being able to say things that I wouldn't be able to say in a pop band. Yeah, big time. Were you looking as well for, uh, for want of a better term, for a new family to integrate yourself with because yours was, was falling apart? And did, did punk rock and that community offer you that? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that I was looking for anything. Um, you know, I, I, when I, when I cut my hair, because I, I was a surfer, I had long hair. And when I cut my hair, I just, you know, it was just a random day. And I just walked into a supercut and said, I want you to cut my hair off and make it the spiky thing. Like, you know, they were all looking at me like I was crazy. They didn't know how to do it, but they cut my hair. I wasn't with anybody. I didn't think I was going to meet anybody. Uh, this was just, I was just going to do this. And that was the end of that discussion. Uh, and that was in the summer of 79. And then, uh, by the time I got back to school in 1980, that's when I met Greg. So we were the only two, you know, punk guys at, at, at our high school. So I, I wasn't looking for a community. We just found each other because we're, I guess we're it. Yeah, I guess um, it was easy to spot fellow punks back then as well, wasn't it? Because there was so yeah. few of you and you stood out. Yeah, there was there was no mistaking someone who who, who bought into this lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> it was genuinely dangerous as well, I imagine, like walking around looking like that at that point in time. Yeah, you know, where especially where we were, because it wasn't it, you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't a tourist area, and it certainly wasn't a hot spot of of uh, artist activity. We were just in a conservative neighborhood. Uh, in in the West San Fernando Valley, where people just had cookie cutter homes and didn't put up with a lot of shit, and all the kids drove Camaros and listened to Rush. Yeah, was 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 there a distinct division? And you talk about this a bit in the book between the city punks and the Valley kids, and were you sort of ostracized for not being from the city? Sort of, but I think you know, in in I think everybody was from no matter where you. I, Honestly, I don't think anybody really came from Hollywood except for older people, you know, people that could afford to live in Hollywood on their own. Yeah. Uh, and they were mostly the artist types. They were, they weren't really, uh, skaters you know, they weren't this alternative lifestyle punks. They were, they were mostly alternative artists. That was the Hollywood people. And they were definitely an older crew. But if you were coming from the South Bay or you were coming from the Valley, you weren't from Hollywood. So nobody was really from Hollywood, but there were so few people from the Valley that it was, you know, people just said, what? <laughs> Where are you from? Like, Woodland Hills. You're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it was such a wild time for not just music, but you've already mentioned it for skateboarding as well. And those two cultures really did go hand in hand early on, didn't they? And, you know, I think that the, the scenes fed into each other and you were obviously there for the birth of of both like were you um around skaters as well as musicians early on people like Dwayne yeah. Peters and, and Jay Adams and, and cats like that were you around them yeah I, I mean I wasn't friends with them because they lived pretty far away from me but one of the places that I was uh all the time uh near my house was a place called Reseda Skater Cross uh and this was one of those uh those built skate parks it, it's like a concrete run 
And so it was one of the first ones that I knew of. There was one out in, uh, out in Ontario uh, that, you know, but this Reseda Skater Cross was where everybody came eventually. And I was always there because it was just right around the corner from my house. So I wasn't, I wasn't friends with any of those people, but I was definitely around them. And I could, and I knew when, when the Dogtown guys showed up and I knew when, when like the kind of older punker guys showed up and I was like, yeah, those are the guys, those are the cool guys. Those are the guys I want to be. Um, but you know, it, 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 it's funny because they were, they were great at skateboarding and I wasn't, I wasn't a very good skateboarder. I wasn't, I, I tried, but I was just like, this is, you know, I'm just not that guy. Um, and in all honesty, when they, when, when those guys showed up, like when the Dogtown guys showed up, I, I didn't want to be them as a skateboarder. I wanted to be them as a person. Cause that embodied rebellion I, and punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. Like when Tony Alva and Jay Adams and, 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 and the mirrors were there and I'm just like, yeah, these guys are, these guys are badass. I mean, yeah, uh, there's that story in the book. I can't remember the exact details, but it, you know, it kind of stood out and, it really brought home as exciting and, um, you know, creative as that time was. There was also a dark underside, wasn't there? And there was, there was a lot of violence and a lot of, like, unsavory incidences. And there's that, there's the story in the book um, where Jay gets in a fight with a guy in that parking lot and he accidentally kills someone, right? And didn't, didn't, yeah, he... but it was, but, but it wasn't him just to clarify that. Like he did get in the fight with the guy, but, 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 and you know, this was one of the things that I always like when I told the cops, cause they were saying it was him. And I said, I said, the funny thing was, is he was out cold. So it wasn't him. Right. Cause he may have started the fight, but that guy knocked him out, like <laughs> knocked him right out. I'm like, no, he was out cold on the ground. He didn't, he didn't finish anything. So. And didn't you get arrested for that? Cause you got identified as being there. I did. Yeah. I guess that was a moment when, you know, your parents must have realized like shit, he's running with a bad crowd. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think that there was any real way around that. It was just, I, you know, it's not something that you can say it was inevitable, but, um, yeah, I, I, I was just living that life and, 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 you know, when when that happened at Okie Dogs, I did uh, obviously it wasn't I, I wasn't I didn't like it, but I can guarantee you it wasn't the first time I'd ever seen it happen. Yeah, and and that was you know you talk about that violence in the in the at the shows and just I mean honestly it was just in L.A. in general. I I, I hate to say that because it sounds like you know I'm, I'm painting this picture of this dangerous city, uh, but when you're a kid and, and you've already seen. You know, and I don't mean just in the punk rock world, but you've just seen people die in front of you, whether they've been shot or stabbed or hit by a car or whatever. You kind of get jaded to all that. We're like, oh, there's another dead guy. Yeah, that makes sense. And I gather from a lot of those punk shows that it was common, um, you know, wasn't it, for stabbings and fights and, and all of that. That was just like it was there. It was part of the part yeah, of, part I mean, of it, DNA. It definitely, it, definitely, it definitely escalated, and there was always some shows where you knew it was going to be bad, maybe because of the bands that were playing. Uh, but, it, you know, it, I, I think there was an influx of people, because back then punk shows were three bucks, whatever, and, you know, there just seemed to be this influx of people that would pay their $3 to come in and just bash heads. That was, that was you know, it was like their, their, their ticket to ride. Uh, 
was their entry cost, and they just came in and just fought people. Um, and, and there was a lot of that, and and then there was you know there was there was a handful of guys that fought back and just kind of said that we're in a weird way. You said you were trying to take our pit back from people that just want to fight by fighting them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm I don't know if that really works, but that's what happens when you're you know when you're 17 years old and you think you have answers. <laughs> yeah. What about on the flip side to that? Some happy memories from the the legendary Starwood venue. Uh, that seems to be like a focal point of energy for for this time and place, and for so many bands and and moments like that seemed to be the gathering spot. Right? What, what, is that safe to say? Yeah. Early on, you know, I, I think at least once a week there was always something happening there, and the, and it it had this sort of weird parking enclave where. You didn't have to pay to get into this parking lot, uh, but that's where everybody was hanging out. So you'd get in there and you'd just be hanging out with all their friends in the parking lot. And then someone would get enough money to get in and you just, everybody would transfer the stamp onto their hand, yeah. you know, lick your hand and, and then, and everybody would go in and classic. Yeah, it was, you know, the Starwood was, it was funny because it was, uh, multiple rooms there was one big live room but there was a dj room and a food room and a pool hall and blah 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 10 places where you could kind of just piss off and, and go find anything to do so yeah early on it was exciting and, and uh, the funny thing was there was a lot of guys that were coming there uh to see punk shows and and i had already been to the starwood to see quiet riot years before that because they came and played at my high school and I was like, Randy Rhodes is the greatest guitar player ever. So I just kind of followed him. And they're like, they're playing the Starwood. And I said, yeah, mom, drive me to the Starwood. I'm going to go see this guy play guitar again. So I'd already, I already knew what the Starwood was, which I shouldn't have. Because, you know, it's like, well, how do you know this place? I'm like, I've been here a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> so many great bands at that time as well. Uh, did you play your first show as Bad Religion with Social Distortion? Is that right? We did, yeah. Our, our 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 actual first booked show uh, was at a club that didn't open. Like they they just the, you know we had a booked show we were going to go play and then they they never showed up to open the club. We were all stood around outside and said, "I guess we're not playing." So 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 <laughs> so the next the next show was was with Social Distortion in Orange County, just in a warehouse full of people and a PA and. And, uh, and it was just us and social distortion and, you know, it was, it was really terrifying, but I think that we all had a, a good enough time to, to want to do it again. Yeah. You say in the book, Steve Soto, who was, I guess, a, a good friend of yours, he gave you some advice early on, which was to always yeah. drink, drink at least a six pack before you play and that will get rid yeah. of the, the pre-show nerves. <laughs> The heebie-jeebies. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, I, and, you know, sober, me, totally stone cold sober, thrown up all over the place before we played because I was so nervous. Wow. Um, but, you know, that's just, I, I, I don't know. I, that was, I, I can, I can remember that feeling of, um, I, I, it's like this, this, this anxious enjoyment. <laughs> like you're going to get on this roller coaster that you know is terrifying, but you'll be okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I'd never, I, we'd had never played in front of people before. So that was sort of what was terrifying about it. I guess I, I'm, I never really thought about what was terrifying, but it was, but 
you know, I, I guess the, the, the good part about being in a band is that, you know, the other guys are like, come on, let's go do this. You're like, yeah, let's do this. And, and then you go out and play your eight songs and, and everybody's fine. <laughs> was it a supportive like encouraging community and scene did all of you as bands you know lift each other up and spur each other on or was there a kind of healthy competitive element going on as well like what was it like with bands like social distortion and adolescence and and bad religion it was, it was a little bit of both i think that you know we were we were what i call the third wave of of this southern california punk rock and so the bands like Social Distortion and TSOL and us and the adolescents. And so we're part of this wave. And so we were always supportive of each other, but also competitive, like wanting to, wanting to do as good as they were doing or whatever they were doing. Uh, the next level up guys, the circle jerks, black flag, they were our mentors. So we just kind of looked at them to like, you know, lead the way, and, and we were just the kids, and they were sort of the grown-ups. And then the first wave was like the screamers and the weirdos, and and those were like the old guard, where you're just like, we don't, we don't even talk to those guys because we don't know anybody. <laughs> but the, that that third wave, we were all friends and competitive, and and super helpful to each other. You know, loaning gear. If we get a show, we would put them on the show. They would always put us on the shows. So you know, it was I can. One one show, the adolescents were playing a show, and I guess coincidentally, all of Bad Religion showed up. Me, Greg, Brett, and Jay Ziskraut uh, all showed. No, it was, it was actually Pete Feinstone showed up at a show that the adolescents were playing, and and they just said, "You guys go play like four songs before we play." We weren't on the bill or anything. They just said, "You guys go play our gear," and we're like, "Yeah, okay." So that kind of thing was was always happening. Amazing. And was Soto a good pal of yours over the years? Did you remain close? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all, we all kind of, I mean, there was definitely a lot of years there where we didn't see each other because most of the bands broke up, um, kind of us included, and just sort of got on with their lives. And then by the time we came back and did suffer, we just sort of, there wasn't anybody really left. The adolescents had, had sort of splintered into a thousand bands and TSOL was a different TSOL. And I think Mike Ness may have been in jail. Um, but yeah, there just wasn't a scene to come back to with that kind of support. We tried to help each other out as we were moving along, but it, it wasn't the same. What was Mike like as a young man? He fascinates me as a figure. He's, so, he's like the Johnny Cash of punk rock, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's more of that now than he was then. Right. Uh, but I think that that's that's something that he he sort of found his he found his way. Um, I, I Mike was just he. It was funny. The whole Social D crew was they were really they were very fucking cool. <laughs> you know, they were the guys always that had like, chicks they, around them and stuff like that. Yeah, they. God, I swear to God, they all had these Volvos. I don't know if you've ever seen these things. There's Volvo makes this car that looks like a 1940s, uh, you know, like gangster car. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it. Yeah, and and they're, but they're little. They're not tiny, but they're they're like a smaller version of this, you know, full gangster car. And everybody, all of their friends, all the crew, they all drove around in these cars. And they all had slick hair. And they all rolled the pants, and they, you know, they all had cigarettes in their sleeves. And they were just these guys. Like, fuck, these guys are so cool. So they they were their own sort of world. And Mike was just. 
I don't want to say he was the leader of that, but he was the singer of Social D, and, and it was just sort of, oh, it's Mike. And, and you know, he, he just has this sort of quiet way about him, and, and, and the way he talks is sort of a guy. For some reason, he has a drawl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, all right, cool. Yeah, they're interesting bands, all of them, yourselves included. Like, everybody was unique and different. Although you were part of a community and a scene, everybody had something unique to offer. And, you know, Circle, I know Circle Jerks, kind of you were saying, just came a little bit before you, but your stories were very intertwined, it seemed like, in those early days, a lot of shows together. And, you know, on, on many ways, you couldn't have had two more different bands, kind of with the, the lyrical content and the approach, like one's this kind of very irreverent, party, destructive, chaotic group. Obviously, you guys are a bit more considered and thoughtful and political, but I gather you played like loads and loads of shows together coming up, right? We did, but I mean, when you say loads and loads, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hundreds, tens, so um, we 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 played with them a lot, but but it may have been more to do with just there were there were fewer bands. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. There makes just, sense. There just really there just really weren't that many bands to choose from, and you know we we learned sort of early on that one way to get shows was basically just to play for cheap. You know, and and, and don't be saying like, well, we want a hundred dollars. It's like, no, we'll, we'll we'll play for beer. <laughs> so you know just, just to you, make you, it happen yeah well yeah because then you get you get put on these bills and um you know a lot it was funny a lot of the promoters for some reason really believed in us you know they, they believed in us enough to call us when when the ramones came to town or or uh you know discharge was playing at the santa monica civic so it's like all right we're getting these calls so uh, there's something there uh, um you know i it, it may have been more to do with, from my point of view, being where we are now, I would say the Circle Jerks probably had more to do with putting us on their shows than anything else. Because I know Keith liked us and Greg liked us and, and Lucky liked us. I don't think Roger knew we were even alive. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that, you know, there was there was part of this taking a band under your wing sort of concept with the jerks and, and that was always fun and they, they were cool guys we were always cool together talk to me about jack grissom jay i i just find that man so fascinating i got to see him play uh i think last summer i want to say in london and he was just kind of like telling all these stories in between songs that you you didn't quite know whether they were real or not but i guess with someone like jack they must be but he was talking about like dropping acid and stealing rich people's yachts and all these wild stories and you're like and, and he'd sort of finish everyone and that's a true story kind of thing uh what a character was he always like just far out out there yeah uh, yeah with with jack jack's a little like Fletcher, where it's like whatever he's telling you, even though it's like mind bending, it's only part of the story. Where <laughs> 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 you're just like, oh, and then it got worse. You're like, oh, <laughs> um, yeah. And and I when uh, there was a point where I guess um, TSOL as a band was having some you know, some, some problems internally. And, and Mike had quit. Mike Boach quit. And Jack called me and said, Hey man, do you want to step in? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll fill in. And I went down to live with Jack. <laughs> I and so, can't imagine uh, that. No, yeah, no, you, you can't. <laughs> uh, all of those things that, that happened, happened. And it was just sort of, uh, it was an eye opening experience of like, wow, this is like, this is what it's like to just live 
full on 24 seven hours. It's just like, you're just always on. Um, yeah, it's taxing. It's very tiring. <laughs> were you still the party guy when you were living with him? Was that in, in that time period? Yeah. Oh, totally. So yeah, you, totally. you were running wild together. Yep. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was, that was great and not great at the exact same time. I think with everybody who decides at a certain point, like this isn't healthy for you, was it evident looking back that it was always that way or did things take a change at a certain point? Like, was it healthy to a point and then things got out of control or do you think looking back, it was always like that propensity was always there to push it to the limit? Yeah, no, if I, if I look back to the first time I ever even had a drink, I drank way too much gin and you know, it's like everything that I'd ever done, from that point on was too much of whatever it was, you know, here, eat these mushrooms, not the whole bag here, take this LSD, not that whole tab. Uh, it was just, that was me. I just, I, I didn't seem to have an off switch. And, and that's me looking back to when I was 14 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this life obviously allows you to sort of juggle that if you can and, and get away with it a lot more than you would at a nine to five where your boss would be like, can't show up hungover like this i mean it's i can show up on stage hungover as long as i can get close to the right note it's like ah, oh, jesus christ he's hungover but whatever um it's it's not until it just you know you're 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 one of one of the things that that is said at some of the meetings is you admit that you're powerless over alcohol which is like yeah i'm pretty much if i open a bottle i have to finish all of the alcohol in the world but the second part of that is, and that your life has become unmanageable. And that's the part where it's like everything in my life is just garbage because I'm just drinking my responsibilities away. I'm not paying attention to anything. And this isn't really how I want to live my life. Well, I guess, was it 1990 when you originally called, yeah. called time? Um, yeah. Were you at that point in like a, a good place mentally in your life? Were you happy? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was, uh, uh, fairly newly married. Uh, the band was doing great and, um, we're going on, on international tours. I'm working at Epitaph. Like, you know, everything is sort of okay. I had no reason to be unhappy. And, and in all honesty, I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't, I wasn't one of those people that was drinking to, uh, assuage my fears or angers. I just seemed to have this problem with drinking. I would start drinking and I couldn't stop. Um, you know, maybe, maybe early on when I was younger, that drinking sort of was the social lubricant that, that helped me talk to girls at parties, but I was well beyond that. Now I was just, I just had a problem with drinking and, and, you know, looking back at that and, and doing the work that I've done now, it's like we talk about drugs and all these things that, that these crazy shitty things that you do. It's like, but I would have never done any of that if I wasn't drunk. You know, someone coming up and saying, here's these keys to this car, steal that car and drive it down there. So if I was sober, I'd go, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you <laughs> Jack, Jack might in. do that with a super sober yeah. head. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. You would. And that's, that's kind of that thing where it's like you kind of have to admire that like wow you just do this don't call so <laughs> but most quote-unquote normal people you're right they'd have their thinking head on and they'd go no that's a stupid idea that's a bad idea i'm going to end up in prison or or you know whatever but 
all, all of my trouble sort of came from, from my inability to not drink. And so that was why I said, I, I've got to make a change and I can't seem to do it by myself. Isn't it funny looking back at the, the bad religion album releases? Uh, there's a funny part in the book where you say the one record that I wasn't there for <laughs> was, was when they got the keyboards out and went all progressive. So, you know, even though I'm not necessarily in that main songwriting duo, I need to be around at all times just to make sure that that, that doesn't happen again. When you were, I mean, when you left the band, what were you up to at that point in time before Suffer, before you came back for Suffer? Were you just kind of working a normal job? Were you still playing music? What was going on? I had, uh, when I, when I, when I walked out of the studio, when we were recording that record, uh, I got through one song and said, I'm not doing this. And I walked out and that was, uh, I was in TSOL. So, so I was in two bands. I was also in a band called Wasted Youth, but they were, Wasted Youth wasn't really doing very much because Danny had left and Al Steeritz had left. And so we were trying to make this band happen. But I was in other bands, so I didn't really mind leaving Bad Religion because I was in these two other bands. Uh, but then Wasted Youth went to their third singer, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I left that band, and now I'm solely in the, the Jack Grisham TSOL, now Cathedral of Tears, because now he's out. I'm living with him. We're starting this other band. And it was living there was a little too much for me, so I I came back to live with my mom, and uh, and they and they just got another bass player and went and started playing shows without me, and I went, I guess I'm out, and that was a moment probably eighty eighty four eighty five where I just I just sold all my gear. I said I don't want to play music anymore because it's just it's just disappointing. So I, I sold everything I had and I went to, I, I met a girl um, that Greg had actually been dating years before and uh, ran into her and we started dating and her dad had a machine shop where he just made, you know, screws for NASA and, and, and parts for hand grenades or whatever. And I went to work in a machine shop. And so I just, I made, I made little precision parts for nine hours a day. Uh, but I was, I, I, I don't know if I was happy, but I just kind of figured that was, that was what was going to be my life. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and then after a couple of years of that, Greg Hetson called me because, um, Flea was playing bass in the circle jerks and had left because obviously the chili peppers were now the biggest band in the world. And, and, uh, and Greg called me and asked me if I wanted to play. And I said, I don't have any gear. But I, I think I do want to play. And so that's how I got back into music was was going back and actually playing with the circle jerks just for one show. But, you know, doing rehearsals and going out and, and buying whatever crappy gear I could get and, and just getting back into it. Uh, that just, you know, then then after I did that, then Greg Graffin called me and said, hey, you know, you want to get back into bad religion. And that was 86 ish. And I said, yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time with the Circle Jerks. I think, you know, I, I, I missed playing. I missed being in a band. And and that was uh, 35, 36 years ago. So <laughs> things worked out all right. It's interesting, yeah, isn't it? it? I think certain people can, 
I heard you on another podcast actually saying that your son, who used to play with Dave, had done it for a while and was like, yeah, that was you know a fun experience, but that's not for me. I'm going to go and, and just work and, and stay at home and not be the on-the-road tour guy. And I think with some people, it you're not complete unless you're doing it, right? And that's not necessarily just touring and being on the road, but I mean being in a band and being a part of that worlds i think for some people it's like if you're not doing that you're not quite whole because that's what you're destined to do i believe in that anyway i i think so my you know my wife is a painter and and you know she wakes up in the morning four thirty, five o'clock in the morning and just heads off to the studio before any of us are in the house or waking she's in the studio painting every day and you know she doesn't have to nobody's paying her to be there she's just painting and working on stuff and and uh it's that's her passion. She's just she's just driven by this and has been since since I met her. I love uh, the and, painting that she did for the Koki the Clown record. I thought it was so I, so good. It was it was really good. It was <laughs> it was actually really terrifying. I'm like, wow, that's really good. That's actually sad. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. She did a great job with that. Um, but you know, I, and I so I think that like the. I think a lot of people play music, but it, but when you get addicted to that whole thing, that's hard to break out of. And like you said, you know, some people are just destined to do this. It's like, I, I told my son, I told Miles, I, you know, he was playing bass with Dave and I said, you're, you're a better, you're technically a better bass player than I will ever be. <laughs> Already. I love it. And, and, you know, he took, he, he's a he's just a massive metal guitar player he's a he's a phenomenal guitar player it was funny he said he said uh you know he's playing he's playing guitar doing all these leads and he goes i just want to get better and so i called dave nassi and i said hey can you give miles some lessons about like full metal stuff and so so, like a couple years with dave nassi and miles was just a monster but now he's playing bass with dave hawes but I, I told him, I said, look, you're, you're better than I'll ever be, but I can walk out in front of 100,000 people and not freak out and not forget notes because I'm comfortable doing that. Yeah. So it's a different, it's a, you know, there's, there's, there's different levels of what you're proficient at. It's like you can be really good technically, but you can't do it in front of other people. And I can go out in front of other people and jump around and smile and throw up and burp and, and not forget notes and be like, this is great. I'm having so much fun. Originally, when you stopped drinking and doing everything else, were shows strange to perform sober? Had you been used to doing those under the influence of one thing or another? And was it difficult finding your feet doing it, you know, with a clear head? Or was it quite exciting and exhilarating or a little bit? It, of both? Was, it was it was it was exciting, exhilarating. And I was like, oh, my God, look at all this that I've been missing. Yeah. Like just every like like just it, it was so um it was pleasantly cathartic. <laughs> I mean, it was. Just, I could hear pins drop in the in the audience when Greg was talking, and I could hear people talking at the bar, and I could just stand there and go like, "Oh, I know exactly what note I'm going to play next." And I'm looking over at Brian, going like, "Wow, you're a phenomenal guitar player." Just all all of this stuff that's just like, "Oh, I I forgot all this stuff. This is great." And that, and the Brian part was the second sobriety. The, the first part was just more Brett. So. 
Well, when Brian joined the band, there's, I mean, I love the book so much. I'll mention the book in the intro, don't worry, but I obviously haven't like directly referenced it yet, but I, I read it and I loved it. And I, I kind of enjoyed, I spoke to Brian about a week ago, he was on the show and it seems like for a while there, you guys were, you know, you were running partners and you, you were the two that would get up to mischief with each other before you both then got sober. Um, can you look back on that stuff and, and, you know, kind of cherish some of it before it got out of control? Do you have happy memories of, of misspent times boozing and partying with, with Brian on the road? Oh, totally. You yeah. know, I, I don't ever, I don't, I don't look back on anything that I did with regret and go like, Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I, I do. I, I'm like, that was, that's what we did. That's, that was part of who we were and it got us where we are and I don't regret any of it. You know, I, I honestly, I, the, the one thing I regret was what happened in South America uh, when I drank too much with Fletcher. That's the one drinking thing that I regret because that actually affected the show. And, and I don't think that anything that I'd ever done before or after that affected the show the way that did. That was really just, I can't play a note. I shouldn't be out here right now. This is, this is, but I don't remember any of it. This is just what I've been told. So, uh, that's, you know, okay. So, so of, of 40 years, that's my one and only regret. That's pretty good going, isn't it? And thankfully the days before, before smartphones as well. So hopefully there's no footage of it on YouTube, right? I, I keep waiting for it to show up, but I haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> you got away with it then. I love it. Have Man. you got any good warp tour stories, Jay, from the party years? Oh, God, all of them. All of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Are there, are there any that got left out of the book? That All of them. I, you know, we really we didn't talk about, like, we just didn't talk about a lot of the stuff that happened on the warp tour because it was, the warp tour was, you it's know. It's his own beast, the, right? was and during the day you know that everybody's there and you're playing your show and you're doing whatever not much you know during the day there was a little bit of buffoonery but usually not much but it was when everybody left and it was dark outside that just all you know everybody just lost their minds because we were just you're just you're in the middle of a field in the in at summer camp and you got nothing better to do than take drugs and float down a river on a raft it's like okay cool so um yeah it just there wasn't the 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 most of it was just sort of pleasant, drunken barbecuing, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. Yes, yeah, so, um, summer you know, camp there, on the road. Yeah, there were some instances where, you know, things got a little crazy. Some fires maybe got out of control, and, and we probably put some stuff in some waterways that we shouldn't have. But it happens, you know, you just you kind of, you get, you just move on and, and go to the next town. <laughs> i guess it was just that perfect storm wasn't it of you know like skateboarding and alternative music just rose to the forefront of of the mainstream didn't they and kind of took over for a minute there and, and yeah i you know we we got on a 98 and that was sort of uh that was right in the in the in the beginning of that door opening for you know uh the x games and 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 Tony Hawk Pro Skater and everything is just sort of blowing up in terms of this Southern California lifestyle that you're presenting to the world. Yeah. And so there was good, you know, four or five years there where it was, for lack of a better word, I would say that it was dangerous. And eventually that danger started taking its toll on 
on Kevin Lyman and his insurance policies. Because the first thing to go was the motocross guys, which was my favorite part was like, these guys were my buddies. And, and, you know, watching these guys made us look like idiots. Then the big skateboard pipe goes out. And, you know, all these things start start leaving because it's just, you just can't, you can't manage that. So I always look back and say those unmanageable years, you know, 97, 98, maybe 2002, were like the, that was the time where the warp Tour was at its most dangerous. And then it just gets a little, I want to, I don't want to say corporate, but it just gets a little safe and sane. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess everything has its run as well, doesn't it? Like all good things eventually, particularly when they're successful and popular, they can never quite retain that, I don't know, naivety almost and purity that they have to start yeah. out. Yeah, that's the hard, that's the hard part to, in, in any art, you know, the hard, the hard part to, to keep hold of is that naivete because that's what got you here, not knowing any better. I didn't know the rules. Therefore, I broke them and made my own rules that everybody liked. And you try to not ever forget that. You try to always remember, like, breaking the rules is what got you here. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What's really interesting about the story of your band is it's so linked to just the story of punk as a whole in the US. Uh, Obviously, Suffer's this kind of seminal record that gets talked about all the time is really influencing so many of the bands that followed. And then you had that explosion that Epitaph was really, you know, the center of, which obviously is intrinsically linked to the story of Bad Religion as well. Then the Warp Tour, there's like all these phases where punk kind of becomes like this dominant thing that takes over the world for a brief time and bad religion are kind of like right there throughout all of it. And it's amazing when so many bands that you came up with, you know, mainly just did sort of one record that stood out and inspired people. And then either bands break up or they do one more and then they break up. But you guys were there at the start and I mean, you're still there now 40 years in it's wild. Um, What do you think the secret to the longevity of this band has been? 
if you could even answer that? Um, I, the lesson from Into the Unknown is probably one of the biggest parts of us being able to um, say that, look, we already, we, we did all that. We broke up. We made our mistakes. We had our, we had our, uh, we had our ego balloon popped. And, and that always helped us to put ourselves in check. Uh, and as, as we were growing and as, the, as, as everything around was growing, we were able to kind of step back and say, look, this is all fun and this is all great, but it's, it's not the end all be all. It doesn't make our lives uh, important. It, 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 this is something that we do together, but individually we all have things that are important in our lives. Um, and we just sort of remembered that why we wanted to do this wasn't, you know, wasn't as important as us breaking up or, or fighting about things. And if we did fight about things, we have learned how to resolve those fights, you know, and, and, and get through it without thinking like, you know, we, we, we have to break up because of irreconcilable differences. We don't have that. We don't have you know, he's a dick. It's like, well, yeah, he's a dick. But you know what? If you quit the band and go work in an office, the guy at the desk next to you is a dick too. <laughs> so you what start a great way of looking like, at it. Yeah. These are, these are just, these are just things and it doesn't, it's, it's just not that important. It's not, it's not important to have your way or the highway. So we've all sort of just gotten there over, over years of making mistakes. So now, we're, you know, here we are with, you know, Red has quit twice. I've quit once. We've all had big blowups. We've all had big fights. But now we just, you know, we still have fights, but we just it, they don't they don't linger. It just we just don't have that. And and it, and this is it's not like well now you're older and you know better. No, this is this has been really since probably since we set out and did suffer. You know, we when we made suffer, no one gave a shit about bad religion, and I mean that. We were like nobody cared about what we were doing. We were in the studio, nobody cared. We made a record. We didn't even know who was going to buy it. We liked it. We said this is a good record. We like this, but we didn't, you know, had no idea what it was going to mean. And then as it started getting traction and picking stuff up, it's like, oh, people really like this. Well, we better do another record. So we made no control. Oh, they like that. We better do another record. So. We got into this pattern of, of wanting to do things. And if there was ever a time where we or any individual sort of got like, I'm important, the rest of us would just go, yeah, no, we, we did that once before. We made that mistake. We're not. We don't do that. We just, we do what we like. And, and there aren't really, you know, it, it, the sign of the door says, leave your ego outside. Yeah, that's an important lesson, isn't it? Which so many bands, as soon as a whiff of success comes around they throw that out the window don't they because it's like oh now we're going to be huge now i'm going to just you know put all of the kind of greater good aside for personal gain and greed ruins so many people as does ego doesn't it in this game i i think so i think there comes a point where you know people will say you're really popular and one member will stand up and say and it's all because of me yeah and that's a really hard thing to to deal with especially when you're emotionally immature. And, and if you're in a band, I got to tell you, man, you're, you're living a Peter Pan lifestyle. You're, this isn't the most mature lifestyle to lead. So uh, it's, it's, it's a struggle to deal with those emotions. And I think when you collectively have this idea that we jokingly put ourselves in our place, 
that that sort of helps everything. You don't take everything personally and realize like, look, this we're just we're just in it for the for the better good, and we do this because we like it. And and over the years, it's become how we make our living. And it's like, okay, this is you know this is this is all fine. So why disrupt this with with ego? Was that we seem? Go on, Jay. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, was there anything that you talked about in the book that came up in the book that helped resolve certain issues that were perhaps kind of not quite fully resolved? Like, was there anything that came up where you thought, oh, it'd be good to just air this and finally talk about this openly? And was there any moments like that where the the process of creating this book brought about real closure for yourself or for... No, no. You know, honestly, I think that... that that as as the book was sort of unfolding and becoming the book that it is, uh, you know, we were we're we're never that far apart from each other. Especially, you know, this year doesn't count. But as the book was being written, Jim was out on the bus with us, and so you know, you see that you spend you know twenty six hours a day with each other. You're just constantly with each other. And so if you're talking to Jim about something that Brian has never heard before. He's just right there saying like, I didn't know that happened. And so now you're having that conversation. Um, you know, there wasn't, there, there wasn't really many eye opening things in the book. I think one of the things that, that, that even as a band, when we started talking about the book, we just kind of sat and said, we, we as a band sat and said like, look, let's just not talk shit about each other or people that were in the band and aren't anymore. Let's just, let's not be that band that just like, just, you know, Writes a dirty book. What's the point of that? Yeah, we can save we can save that book for when 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 it's over. <laughs> um, the but, truth, but the whole truth, things. and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Yeah, they're just yeah. I mean, it's not it's it's it, it wasn't like there was like oh, oh man, I can't wait to tell this story. This is there just isn't there just isn't with us. You know, we're we're a we're a band that that essentially loves science, <laughs> and so a lot of stuff that we do is just really well thought out it's like well this is this is the process that we have to go through um you know we, we we sort of don't have a lot of emotions attached anymore i think when when we were younger there were because you're a kid but now it's just it's sort of like this is just um this is the process of us being allowed to say the things that we feel and and we we each respect that process and i think that that was a big thing uh that I, I, it's not in the book, but that's something that like it, it's a band philosophy that we respect the process of the band. It's a machine. You respect the machine, and if you disrespect the machine, it will set you down. Yeah, I think you know when you're kind of directing the ship with logic and reason as the guiding lights, then you realize that sometimes it's you know it's about the bigger picture, isn't it, and the greater good, and that's that's above individual interests or hangups. Yeah, I, I think you, you can let your emotions get the better of you, especially in, in you know, this. people don't, you know, uh, you always hear artists talk about, you know, it's stressful. And I don't want to be one of those guys, but it is it is stressful to walk out on stage and, and entertain. It's like, people oh, I'll get another job. It's like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying it's, it's just, I, I try to tell people, they say, what's it like to walk out on stage? And I go, well. It's high pressure, right? There's pressure there. It, 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 it is. It's not, you know, it, it's high pressure, but what it feels like is like you're in this slow motion train wreck for two hours <laughs> <laughs> and you're just in it. You're just, 
you're just sitting in this chair in this train wreck that just keeps happening for two hours. Like, well, here I go. I'm in this wreck. Uh, it's um, and not to mean that it's bad, but that's sort of the adrenaline, the emotion that you're feeling is like just you don't want it to end, but you just kind of can't see what's coming next, and you never know. And and there's that takes a toll on everybody. So you know, giving giving people that leeway of knowing that after nine or 10 shows in a row, somebody may snap because it's, it's hard to deal with that. You kind of go, Hey, I totally understand. You don't fight back and go like, well, you're just a dick. Cause you just understand that. Like I, I get it. It's stressful because we're all in this together. It's a, it's this stressful, stressful joy ride. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that that's sort of what helps us. And it certainly helps us understand other musicians as well, because, I get it. It's it's tough. It's hard on everybody. When you go and you play with the gimmies, obviously it's an entirely different experience. Put me in the, the kind of the psychological picture of what it's like going from bad religion to then going out and I guess what feels like just having unadulterated fun with, with that band who are such a hilarious, entertaining group. Is it just a nice change of pace? for you as a musician and as a person to just break things up in that way and go out with them and mix it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the, you know, like one, one of the philosophies of bass guitar is learn everything and then throw it all away. And that's whatever. I've never known what the hell that meant uh, until I got in the gimmies. And that's like, so learn everything, take everything that I know and play it all at the same time. (laughs) and 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 there just aren't rules there's just sort of there's just this desire to be as entertaining as humanly possible and the amount of fun that like because in in bad religion if you you know you kind of just really blow it on stage you're raising your hand and you're feeling pretty bad about like oh god i've just I fucked that song up so bad. But with the gimmies, you're like, I, I wonder how much more I can fuck this up. <laughs> you kind of want to. You're like, oh, man, I'm making this terrible. This is great. Do you rehearse uh, together a lot before you go out on tour or not? Does everybody no. just kind of learn the songs on their own? Yeah, you learn the songs on your own. And if you don't know the songs when you walk out on stage, you're punished. <laughs> so um, that that's... <laughs> <laughs> every every show is rehearsal for tomorrow night. Every single show is rehearsal for tomorrow night. <laughs> tomorrow night we'll get it. Are. Tomorrow night we'll get yeah. it. <laughs> totally doesn't matter. You could be you could <laughs> you're you're playing the biggest stadium in the world, and and tomorrow night show is more important. Tonight is just practice for tomorrow night. <laughs> what, what are your favorite songs to play with the Gimmies? Have you got any particular favorites? Uh you know. It, I, I like them all, but there was a there was a a, a thing that we were doing uh, where Spike was playing. Um, he was playing a Bowie song, and he was singing it in German. Uh, and and uh, oh, heroes! He was he was he was doing Bowie heroes, and me and Scott. Shiflet were, were kind of backing him and Scott was sort of playing this, this really haunting guitar. And I was trying to hold that, that, uh, 
that one line down. And it, it's there's not much to it, but for some reason, like being out on Spike, being out with Spike when he's playing the ukulele and singing and we're just sort of backing him, that every night that would just make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I thought, this is so good. This is this is real. Do you know what I mean by that? This is this yeah. is why I do all music. This is why I play all music is to be, be here right now doing this right now because this is this is everything that I ever thought when I was thirteen watching Randy Rhodes at the Starwood. This is everything I ever thought it would be. Yeah, he's a real artist. Spike is. He's got an amazing voice. Amazing. Yeah, voice. he does. He does, and and he's just there. He is just a genuine talent. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a privilege to stand behind him and watch him at work and go like, this is great. Yeah, this is, this is great. Scott's amazing as well. Amazing, but amazing bassist, amazing guitarist. He's just like a proper musical virtuoso, isn't he? That dude. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the real deal. Scott, Scott Shiflett is the real deal. He's, he's that guy. He's the one that, that we all wanted to be when we were kids. Um, you know, there, there, there aren't, there are a lot of people who can mimic guys like Scott, but there are very few guys like Scott. You know, Eddie Van Halen was one of them where it's like, look, people can sound like Eddie, but that's only because Eddie already did it. You know, like that's, there are very few people that are, that are that innovative where you're like, wow, I just, I didn't think that that was possible. Yeah, R.I.P. Edward. Yeah. That was a sad loss, wasn't it, yesterday? What was really beautiful and touching about that, though, was just, and I'm sure it's the same for you if you're on there, like my entire timeline on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything was just Eddie Van Halen tributes everywhere. It was yeah. Lo- lovely. Yeah, yeah across, uh, across all musical genres. Uh, you know, it, 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 it came on my phone and I actually had to sit down. I was like, wow, and I sat down and I thought about it for a minute took a couple of deep breaths because it really that that when you that your, your life flashes before your eyes and it takes you back to 1977 with headphones on listening to van halen one and thinking i've never heard anything like this yeah man eruption that like, it, just changed the game yeah, didn't it totally you know that just just his 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 playing definitely changed all guitar tone from that moment forward and, and what was possible on guitar. Jay, this has been a really good chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for, for taking the time and, and hanging out Thanks, and, and coming on the show. I'd love to finish the conversation just with a little bit of reflection on both Brett and Greg. Obviously you've known the pair of them for forever. Uh, it's a very unique relationship and they're both just, you know, I mean, Brett as a businessman and a record boss and and Greg as a lyricist, the pair of them as songwriters together. Um, As a friend and as a collaborator and as a bandmate, um, what do those two dudes represent to you as as creative forces and as, you know, friends in your life and your band? You know, it's funny because I, 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 I take the business part from Brett out of that picture because I worked with Brett at Epitaph for enough years to have watched his decision-making and think he's, he's two steps out of the box in the way the forward thinking that he had to get Epitaph where it was. It was, it was mind boggling to be part of that and watch his, his business acumen grow and his processes in to get that label where it is. But as band members, 
and partners, uh, it's really, really simple. Brett, as a lyricist as well, Brett writes his own lyrics for his songs. Yeah. Uh, Brett, Brett is the romantic, the, 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 the always searching romantic, looking for uh, retribution and salvation. And Greg is the scientist who just says, uh, I have a lot of questions about uh, the way the modern world and the, and the popular thinking is, and, and I, I, I'm demanding answers. Not from myself. We've never really had many answers in, in most of our songs, uh, but, but looking for someone to come along with, with a better philosophy than what we're being presented now. So those two things, the romantic and the scientist are, it's the tennis match of bad religion, and it's why it works as having those two as songwriters, because if it's all science, it's not any good. If it's all romantic, it's, it's I'm not saying it's not any good, it's just not the same. Uh, and having having these two bounce back and forth between, you know, the, uh, the romantic side of, of songs like You or Infected, and, you know, having uh, Modern Day Catastrophist or, or, you know, any of those songs with what Greg writes as, as the science side of it, which is, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on a tangent here. Having Greg write songs like The Island, to me, is like, I love that. It's like, dude, that's so good. Uh, or Changing Tide, where you're like, that's just so, but that's also science. So I'm kind of going off on a tangent because I love these guys. <laughs> I know. Tangents are good, uh, but, my friend. Tangents are good. But yeah, it, it's it's just it's it's having those two together is, is how this works. There, there, you know, I, I always tell people that that Brett and I dropped out of school. Uh, I dropped out in tenth grade, and Brett dropped out in in twelfth grade. And uh, Greg obviously went on to get his PhD from Cornell. But the three of us never stopped learning, and all of my education and most of most of what I know and who I am has come in these long van rides where we just talked about everything. Everything, quantum physics, religion, geology, music theory. Just We just talked and talked and talked and never stopped, you know, having this voracious appetite for, for learning. And, and that has translated into the band as well. That's the like total definition of life for me is when you get to engage and communicate on a personal level with the people that you share the experience and the journey with. You know, and you get to yeah, actually, I, as you say, form opinions and and get insights and and really kind of just like hash out these big questions and topics. I love yeah, that shit. It, it would it would just be it would be mind boggling to sit in silence in a van or just you know, you know, not to, I don't want to bag on anybody, but I you know, just talking about you know, to see that chick, it's like I don't I don't know. We got We we have to talk about gravity. <laughs> well here's something that i've noticed a lot more with today which is really saddening and annoying is you know i'll be on buses or in vans with bands kind of of a younger generation and they'll all just be on their phones head down on their phone not talking to each other at all and you're there like yeah. trying to chat to people and get a conversation going and everyone's like uh, i'd rather be on fucking snapchat or something it's so frustrating yeah <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're the bands that last though right the bands that can be out on the road and and the conversation never runs dry. I think, and, and it and it certainly it 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 leads to more material for writing albums. You know, all, all of these things that you just you're constantly uh, aware of how you feel as a person, and and your friends around you are are prodding you. Well, why do you feel that way? And it's just opening up all these pages of 
of you know more questions to get more questions and and but at the same time it's it's thrilling and exciting you know i i i've said this a few times but i, I when when brett said uh one of the one of the most difficult challenges in his life is to put a lifetime of emotion into a 3 minute song yeah and i just i looked at him and i said yeah that's that's really it in a nutshell it's not about writing like oh you know i i had this dream it's like no i'm going to i'm going to put it all in i'm going to squeeze it all into this one song yeah that's it that's really it well sorrows like that and you know I, we're all missing live music and i've been all right with it for the large part just trying to like focus on each day live in the now be positive be present and when i was reading the book it was the first time in a long time really that i really really missed live shows is you know just reading about the lyrical content of sorrow and just imagining being in a field listening to a crowd full of people singing the lyrics to that song or with each other i was like fuck i'd love to be in a field watching bad religion right about now i bet you can't wait yeah. to get back out there yeah uh, yeah uh, a lot of us have been talking about what we're doing to sort of replace that energy and 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 there's some pretty crazy shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no idea is too insane, right? At this stage, <laughs> yeah, at this stage, no idea is insane. It's like, sure, do whatever you got. <laughs> What's going on with writing in the book? It kind of hints that the age of unreason might be the last full stop musically. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what we thought. I, I think Brett and I felt that True North was the last record because it, we were happy with it. It was a good record. And we didn't really know if there was, you know, anything else to write about. And I, I know that sounds weird because there's always something to write about. But at that point, we've got 300 and something songs. It's like we've written about almost everything we can think of. Yeah. And you've been uh, doing it for so, years. Yeah. And then, you know, we're out on the road. And, and, and I remember Greg saying, I'm, I'm, I'm writing more songs right now. And I'm, I was kind of like, I, I didn't want to say why. I was like, I'm writing more songs. I'm like, okay. I didn't really think much of it. And, and he said, I don't think Brett's into writing right now. And, and I talked to Brett. This was back in, in you know, 2018 and or maybe 2017. And, and Brett said, yeah, I don't, I, I don't really know if I feel like it. And then all of a sudden he started writing. And once the two of them are going, it's back to that tennis match that I said before. And, and you know, it came pretty quick to come up with Age of Unreason. And, and None of us were. It's an amazing album it. as well. It's really, really great. Yeah, look, by the by the time it was like, okay, here's here's the songs that we've got, and we all looked at each other and said, yeah, we're good with this. Let's let this is great. Let's let's make this record, and we've got Jamie on drums and, and Mike playing guitar, and it's like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, so I can say that we would look at each other and go like, well, we don't need to make a record after this because this is another good record after True North. You know, to say that we wouldn't is silly because there's no point in saying that we, we may write another record. Who I, I, there's just there yeah. just aren't any answers. There, you know, there's there is no. We don't have our, our contract is with ourselves, so it's not like we have a, a an obligation to make three more records. It's like nobody really we can do whatever we want. So maybe I I I don't know. I mean, I it's funny we we toured for. Half a half a year on on Age of Unreason before we had to stop, so it it feels it feels unfulfilled, like we didn't 
finish the process of touring on this, but no, okay, we're not alone. Everybody else is in the same boat. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think that anybody has talked about. We're writing pandemic songs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, Greg, as the scientist, has already written three or four of those. You can go find them anywhere. Well, what's um, what's what's crazy to me is even you know your most popular song, Twenty First Century Digital Boy. That song is as relevant now. It's more relevant now than when you wrote it. Like that's such a pathetic song that you know you kind of predicted the way society and the world was going even then, and now we're we're in that song, aren't we? Kinda. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that, that I, I know about Brett is he is a voracious science fiction writer, uh, reader. He just, he, you know, Kurt Vonnegut is his guy, and he's just very into that whole, uh, that whole realm. And so writing that, that song fits in with his ability to be Orwellian and predict, like, here we are. Yeah, you know, and 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 it turns out that that Big Brother isn't watching us; we're watching Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, sad, sad but true. The book's out. The book's fantastic. I absolutely loved it, and I think that you know the guy had a pretty, a pretty overwhelming task of trying to condense four decades worth of stories and experiences and material into it. But he's he's done an amazing job. Are you all very happy with it in the band? And nice to get all of it finally out there and share it with the world. Yeah, I you know I mean we we set out with a goal to basically tell our story, and you're right. You know, forty years of of material, it's not possible to write that book. It would be six thousand pages. So you know, we we the the stories that were told were the ones that Jim sort of just he just followed up on. Thought, oh, that's an interesting story, and he called Pete Finestone and said, "Did this really happen?" And you know, that was sort of Jim's call on which stories to follow, and and. There, there are millions of other stories that each of us have that just didn't make it into the book because, you know, no one jarred your memory and said, do you remember this happening? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that, that for, for all intents and purposes, it, it's the story of how this band started from just guys in the valley. And then there's, you know, the, the, the trials of, of trying to be a normal band. And you can't be a normal band. You have to be, in, uh, you know, uh, you have to be your own band and, and, and do the DIY ethic because that's all you've got to work with. And then how you deal with when it works, you know what I mean? There's that, you know, be careful what you dream of because it just might come true. It's like, okay, well, yeah, it's not the worst thing, but sometimes you just have to go through all those, the trials and tribulations of, of learning. So I, I think the book in, in, in when I read it the six times, uh, it just it just felt like that was a, it had a it had a beginning, a, a middle, and an end, and it sort of wrapped it up. I thought, wow, I, I I feel like I know this band even better than I did before, and I'm in it. Yeah, what's really cool as well is it's the story of, as I said earlier, it's the story of punk from the kind of hardcore scene through to, you know, its infiltration of the mainstream and beyond. It's the story of all of that. It's also the story of the record business. And as you say, kind of working from within inside that system, but then outside as well and blazing your own trail and doing it on your own. Like it's just a very rich three-dimensional story that's got, you know, a happy 
trajectory, um, which is the the kind of ideal package, isn't it? Is you want to have the the grit, but you also you want to have a positive message and a a happy ending as well. Obviously, the story's still being written, but it's left on a very nice note. Yeah, I I, I think that if, if if there were one thing that maybe you know of of all the things that we're trying to say in the book about ourselves and 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 our feelings and our our, our passions, uh, maybe it's that. If you're an artist, and it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a painter or a sculptor or a writer or, or playing music, there there are ways to do this yourself, and and you know that that if if we can do it, you can do it. And that was really always the philosophy of of bad religion and epitaph. It's like, well, we just did this because we didn't really have a choice. We didn't wait for someone to tell us what to do. We just did it anyway. And now's the perfect time to be taking that message into, you know, putting it into practice, isn't it? Because it, this is the most uncertain time in my lifetime. And I think everybody who worked in the creative fields, it's, you know, nothing but uncertain for all of us. So now is the time to really kind of grab that ball by the horns and create your own destiny, isn't it? I think so. I, I, and I think, it's, I think it's also, it's important to, you know, define your passion. And I think a lot of times people mistake passion with, with fame or a paycheck. You know, I, I, I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me and said like, oh, I used to play bass guitar in high school. And I said, what happened? Well, you know, I, I, I got married. I got married. I had kids. I had kids. I went to school. I went to school. I got a job. I had a job. Why did you stop playing? Well, you know, it wasn't successful. I go, but I play all day long. I would play, I would play, forever if I wasn't in a band because I just like playing music. I, I, I never don't have a guitar in my hand. So much like my life who paints, I, you know, this is, this is my, this wasn't a, <clears throat> this wasn't a ticket out. Playing music wasn't like, this is, this is how I'm going to get out of here. I never thought like that. We didn't think we were ever going to be anything, just four guys in a garage. And, you know, that's, that's that part of like, the passion to want to do this is what should be driving all creativity. And, and if you, if you firmly believe that, that what you're doing is, is your value, then it doesn't matter whether people like it or not. No, I like it. And that's enough. Amen to that. Jay Bentley, you're a good man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that we can meet up in the real world in the new year. And uh, yeah, you had a big tour plan with Alkaline Trio. I hope that does manage to get, replanned and and re-announced and all of that and well I, I, every everything that we're doing is just sort of pushing that tour down the road because it's like we all like it we all like the concept of it uh and i know that they're the only kind of hurdle in there is 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 blink wants to get it out on the road as well and we've all said like look we're, you know they can blink can go out and matt can do, do that work and then and we'll give them his month off and, and then we'll We'll make that tour happen. We might do another tour first, but all of us want that trio tour to happen. Yeah, it's just going to be down to Skibber just tell him he's got to double up. Efforts must be doubled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it'll have to be a a blink bad religion alkaline trio tour. There you go. <laughs> Two, three birds, one stone. Done. There you go. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jay. I hope to, as I said, see you again. Well, see you properly and uh, talk again soon. I'll let you know when this yeah. goes up. And um, yeah, congratulations on, on 40 amazing years. And here's to, here's to the future, my friend. Thanks, Matt. I do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Have a great day, Jay. And uh, yeah. yeah, you too. Till next time, dude. Okay, Matt.
Cheers, mate. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.